Welcome back to PodRocket, a web development podcast from LogRocket. LogRocket helps software teams improve user experience with session replay, error tracking, and product analytics. Try it for free at logrocket.com. I'm Emily, producer for PodRocket, and we're back with our bi-monthly panel episode where we cover a wide range of topics trending in the world of web development. But before we get into our topics, let's welcome our panel. First, we have Shruti Kapoor returning. Shruti is the lead member of technical staff for Slack, a React, JavaScript, and GraphQL developer, content creator, and speaker. Thanks for joining us again, Shruti. Thank you so much for having me again. Of course. Next, we have Jason Langsdorf, also returning to the podcast. Jason is the host of Learn with Jason, where he streams on Twitch to teach web development. Welcome back, Jason. Happy to be back. And next, we have Colby Fayok, who's the Director of Developer Experience at Cloudinary, GitHub star, and content creator. Welcome to the show, Colby. Thanks. Great to be here. Awesome. And then finally, we have our extraordinary PodRocket host, Noel Minchow. Yep. How's it going? (laughs) Welcome back as always, Noel. Welcome everyone, excited to get into it. Our first topic is the Stack Overflow Developer Survey, which just came out on June 13th. Um, There's a lot of revelations that I'm excited to get into. So let's start discussing. The first thing that I noticed on the Overflow Survey was Python was noted to have been slowly gaining popularity over the past three years and has now moved up to spot number three, right below JavaScript script and HTML and CSS. Why do you think Python has been increasingly gaining popularity in recent years? And have you seen more front-end developers using Python in the wild? If I had to guess, I think it's because of the machine learning stuff that's taken off. That seems to be where a lot of the actual programming is done for like large language models. And is that actually what that means? LLMs? Large language. I don't actually, I don't, I'm so bad at following this stuff. I have no idea what uh, it is. It is large language models. <laughs> <laughs> um, but as far as I know, a huge amount of the programming is actually being done in Python. So it would make sense that with the buckets of money being dumped in the AI space, that people would be picking up Python to catch a little bit of that cash. Yeah, I think that's definitely a big reason. I also think Python is actually very easy to understand and pick up, especially if it's your first programming language. And because of that reason, a lot of schools and boot camps are also teaching Python to like new engineers as well. I looked up the curriculum of UC Berkeley, and it seems that Python is the programming language that is being taught. I also know a lot of people who are coming out of boot camps, and Python is the language that is being taught in boot camps as well. So I like that's the first language that they are learning because I remember when I went to school, I learned C and C++, and Python is a lot better than C and C++. <laughs> Yeah, it generally just seems any kind of data processing where a lot of the topical things right now is AI and the machine learning, but any kind of data processing, really Python is the way to go. And I think that's why you see that slow ramp up because companies are just more and more dependent on all that data getting crunched to their systems. But now we're going to see even more of a ramp up with the AI tooling really being focused there. Do we see Python kind of remaining up at spot number three or like having this core group of JavaScript, HTML, CSS, and Python as we're going forward into more machine learning, more AI? Or do you think that 
would something else take this place? Or this might be like the core group as we go forward into, I hate to say this new era of development, but as AI is becoming more of a thing, or is this more of a passing thing? As long as Python kind of remains the lingua franca of this like large, like data modeling world, like it's kind of been like data analytics teams and stuff. Python's usually the language that they're reaching for now more like AI adjacent teams and stuff as that world grows. I think we'll continue to see it. So I think it'll remain in that top slot. I think what'll be more interesting is the TypeScript JavaScript relationship. We'll see how those creep up, but I don't really see anything else coming in hot for one of those top slots right now. I also noticed that there's libraries like Langchain. They provide a JavaScript interface for the same stuff that you would do in Python. So that makes me feel that JavaScript would still be in one of the top three going forward. Although, like Noel said, as long as Python is being used for LLMs, it will be one of the top contenders as well. I am reserving judgment on this because I think the big question I have is whether or not AI is ever going to do anything that goes beyond building tools for the gold rush, because that was what went wrong with crypto, right? Is in crypto, everybody kept saying, we're building the language that the developers of the future will use. We're building the tools that developers of the future will use. And nobody ever built anything real with crypto. And I'm not seeing a ton of actual tools coming out with AI. Like a lot of people have ideas, but mostly people are building tools for people to build with AI. And that's where the money is being invested. So if we don't see any practical applications of it, then I think AI has the same ultimate fate as crypto, where the couple use cases where it makes a lot of sense, it will stick around and otherwise it'll fade back into being a just another facet as opposed to the dominant force in the programming conversation. And yeah, if that happens, if we see that AI is a fad the way the crypto was a fad, then the investment money dries up and we'll see Python probably return to baseline levels of growth as opposed to being the dominant language that it is given the current investment environment. I'm blanking on the name, but there was a code language that was developed on top of Python to interact more natively with like large language models and stuff. And it is interesting to see that it's still using that core layer of Python, but trying to make it a little bit more fit to that particular use case. Before we go on to Node and React, I kind of want to jump on what Noel said about TypeScript. TypeScript came in at five, right under SQL. Do we see that moving up and competing with JavaScript at all? Or do you think that JavaScript for the time being will probably remain number one? It feels like it's a loaded question. In my head, like TypeScript is still JavaScript. It's kind of a tricky dichotomy there, I guess. Maybe it just depends on how people respond to the survey and stuff. I feel like TypeScript is still going up, just like general use. I'm more surprised when I see like a new project started that is not in TypeScript, that's in JavaScript instead. But again, like they can coexist very closely. If the spec changes land where we get typings in JavaScript natively. Yeah. Because that kind of changes the entire thing because then TypeScript is just JavaScript. And if that becomes the case, then you don't need special compilers and things to work with it anymore. At which point I think you kind of lose your argument for why you wouldn't use it at that point. And I say that as somebody who was like a diehard never wanted to use TypeScript. I didn't like the extra tooling. And then I realized how much I value autocomplete. And now I'm a TypeScript diehard. And I'm curious, is the JS doc flavor of that? Do people still say they're writing in TypeScript? So which bucket would that actually fit under? You know, like uh, Rich Harris and Svelte and such. What would they say in the survey? Would they be JavaScript with that JS doc? That's what I'm saying. Like, I'm not sure. Like, maybe there's people writing TypeScript that are still putting JavaScript in their response. It seems so close. 
Well, it's also, it's interesting too, because I use TypeScript for a ton, but I don't know that I would describe myself as a TypeScript developer, but I also don't describe myself as a JavaScript developer. Like, I, I don't, so I, I, maybe I'm just kind of one of those weirdos who gets squishy about labels, but I don't know, maybe that's just an artifact of being a generalist. I'm going to move on to our next set of questions. While Node and React remain the top two most popular frameworks, Next.js has jumped from 11th place to 6th place in the past year. And we know that they've been pushing a lot of their new products, features, everything. So what do you think has driven Next.js's increased popularity? And is there anything specifically that has come out in the past year that you think is driving this growth? And this one might be for the hot take section, but I think when the React team starts openly saying, if you're using React, you need a framework and you should be using Next.js, like you're stacking the deck there. Plus one to that, I think the marketing. I would agree with Jason, like React seems to favor Next.js as a framework. And I think that could be driving up the popularity of Next.js. It is coming out with features like React Server Components and streaming out of the box, which makes it easy to adopt as a framework. So I think there is some truth to the statement that Next.js is becoming really popular. But I also think the fact that React is favoring Next.js as a framework is contributing to that popularity a lot. And I think some of the like political things aside, I think Next.js has always had a really good developer experience to it. And I think that's one thing you got to kind of hand them to. I still kind of am more leaning towards the pages router, but you know, the app router is still a little bit new. So who knows if I eventually get to it, but they do care a lot about having a great developer experience and it shows. And they're also like some of the greatest marketers in the game right now. We can talk about the Vercel team as being technologists, but what they really are more than anything is marketers because they build OK Tech and they launch revolution. And I think that the hype machine that is Vercel, it's hard to argue. You know, they have very clearly signaled that Guillermo wants to be Steve Jobs. And they've shown that in both clothing choices and slide designs, like they're going for Apple. And that's going to be like a game that they play really hard. And I think as long as they've cornered this market of saying you need Next.js or else you're a bad web developer, which is the way they sell it. And the React team coming out and saying like, yeah, if you use React, you need to use Next or else you're not doing it right. How many different ways can you slant in your own favor? It's hard to argue with. They're going to keep growing. I think the biggest hot take though then is who's the Bill Gates in the ecosystem? <laughs> Ooh, that's a, that's a great <laughs> question. Who wants to answer that? Because I want to know. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like that comes with too much like Bill Gates' own baggage. I don't want to put that on anybody. <laughs> so thinking about how the React team is obviously like more slanted towards Next.js, how do we think that's going to change how React apps are developed? How do we see it changing how other frameworks are competing with Next? In the Apple analogy, do we think that we're going to see less and less of other competitors to Next.js? Or do you think this might be just a moment in time where Next is the React framework? I think it's spurred a trend, right? Everyone's got a framework kit built on top of their like web component library tooling, right? Like Svelte is Svelte kit. Yeah, and I, th I think it's just the normal. Like, people want SSR. They're convinced they need it. And I think that's just the trend we're going to see. I think, yeah, it'll be interesting. Like, are there other players in the react space like end up having any sticking power and longevity or if you open a new react project and 
2025 and you assume it's always going to be next. I have to say it's very concerning for somebody who works for an enterprise and is maintaining a React application that probably wants to use server components, server rendering, streaming, and now has to think about if this feature is going to be supported by React natively, or do I have to like now think about how I'm going to migrate my entire app into Next.js app? And as an app as big as Slack, for example, that migration is not easy and it's not going to happen over time. So are we going to suffer because Next.js is the framework of choice and we don't have a path to adopting that right now? Or is there an easy way for developers like us to adopt the new features? I think this is going to be the battle for our time here is the React team right now is very upset because there's a growing perception that this is React's Angular 2 moment where they've introduced a pattern that's incompatible with the way that a lot of people are building. Yeah. And they're making very good points that like, this is very different from Angular 1 to Angular 2 in that all the React code that we've built will continue to run. But it is similar to Angular 1 to Angular 2 in the fact that if you want to build the new way, you got to refactor. You can't just turn on that feature and your whole app is fine. Like you got to rebuild. And if they don't get the education right, if they don't get the migration story, if they don't get something that doesn't require, like Shruti says, if we're in a place where the only way Slack can use the new features of React is to completely migrate to Next.js, that's what happened to Angular 2, where people were like, well, if we have to rethink this whole thing, we should just look at what the modern thing is. And if that's the case, then you know why wouldn't you lean for something like Svelte or Solid that is a smaller bundle size and higher performance and all those things. So I think that React has definitely put itself in a position where it built something cool, but it's got a really big marketing challenge right now because they launched this in a way that makes it seem like everything has to change for this stuff to work. And at the moment, there's some challenges with the way that they're communicating to ecosystem maintainers and there's some beef forming there with like just a general kind of dismissal of really prominent maintainers with valid concerns being told that like you're not a priority. I think there's a big risk for React to burn it all down with this transition. Stack Overflow added a new section this year that centered around AI, as we were talking about the increase of AI usage. 70% of respondents said that they are planning on using AI tools in their development process, with those learning to code being more likely than professional developers to plan on using AI tools. So... Has AI become a part of your own development process? And have you seen developers moving more towards AI tools? Or like Jason was saying, is this possibly just a bubble where people are making AI tools for the sake of making AI tools? I don't think it's personally going to be a bubble, but I definitely think that people are really trying to ride that hype wave and really just dropping in gimmicky things, like adding a chat wherever you can possibly add a chat. And I don't really think that's the future of AI development. I think there's a lot of awesome things that we can do with it for enhancing workflow, but I think it's going to be really background things and how it can help you achieve tasks more efficiently, as opposed to something that you're just going to talk to your bestie about. I agree. I feel like I've been using Copilot and stuff. I find for like generating type definitions for like APIs and stuff that don't have something in the spec, I can just hand that over to a LLM and it's just like, yep, here's your type definition. It's like usually pretty good and correct. Like I could have typed that up myself, but Having somebody type it for me is helpful. I don't find it too useful for like complex business internals and stuff like that. But if there's something that I'm like, I want to figure out how to add 
two hours to a date object in JavaScript without an external library or something. So yeah. I don't know, <laughs> kind of handy for those quick little lookups and stuff like that. So I've been using it, but that's really the only tool I've been using at least. Yeah, plus one. I've been using ChatGPT stuff as well for simple tasks. Like I have this function, it's throwing me this TypeScript error, fix it for me. So ChatGPT will do that for you. Anything more complex than that, ChatGPT starts to fail on me. For example, I asked it a question on like, Something that was related to accessibility, I wanted to create a component that could not have our labels attached to it. So I asked ChatGPT, and sometimes the answers that it will give back is not correct. So I do want to give a warning to anybody who is using ChatGPT for their coding that you cannot rely on it 100%. So use it for like simple tasks. But for content creation, actually, ChatGPT has been really useful. And there's other AI tools as well that have been really useful. One of the main things that I end up using ChatGPT a lot for is unblogging me, especially when I have a creator's blog. Like I'm trying to write a blog post and I kind of have a general idea of what I want to do, but it's very hard to get started or like a YouTube video, like creating a script and then you can go from there and edit it. So it's been really helpful to give you the first prompt and like that first template for you to start off from and pick up your blog post from there or like edit emails or like edit Slack messages. So I've been using it as like an assistant instead of my helper. So Rust has become the most admired language with 84% of respondents saying they would use Rust again. What do you think drives the love for Rust from the Rust stations? And how have you seen the Rust community growing? I've seen a community that was hyper-focused on being inclusive and representative. And I've seen that it was very driven by governance and making sure that people are recognized for their work and all of those different things, which when you're trying to create a new community, that's one of the ways that you really make it grow is you make people feel a sense of ownership and a sense of purpose in it. You're not just here taking advantage of the results, you're building the results, you're building the future of this. I think that is such an incredible strength and the number of people that I've seen that I respect who have moved toward Rust development largely because of the fact that they were sick of the communities that didn't recognize work and wanted them to leave because they weren't like typical white dudes. It's been really impressive. The concern that I have is recently it seems like the Rust project is getting itself into some hot water where they're kind of backing out some of those decisions that made it inclusive. I think if they can navigate that, they'll remain one of the most admired languages. But if they aren't able to navigate that, I think we might see a schism. I know that there's a copy, like a fork of the Rust language that's just trying to get away from the leadership that they disagree with. That was the no Dino thing, right? It was like it was a fork because they didn't agree with leadership and caused all these community problems and issues. So depending on how they navigate that, I think it'll be interesting to see if they can get back on course. Great. Well said. Let's move on to React Server Components. In our last panel episode, we had a lot of listeners with questions about React Server Components. And then at the beginning of this month, the Bytes newsletter noted that server components were finally making their way into real life, specifically meta frameworks like Next, Redwood, and possibly Remix. The article also cited Parcel.js creator Devon Govit, who said, RSCs will make frameworks need to become more specialized. So I want to talk a little bit about React Server components, how they're being implemented, and also touch a little bit on some of the recent issues with RSCs. So before we get into it, can anyone just give a very brief overview of what RSCs are? So 
RSCs or React Server components are components that basically run on the server. A way to think about it is like, for example, if you're creating an app where, let's say, you're calling the database or an example that React documentation gives is you are creating an app that has markdown files and you want to parse the markdown files or call the markdown library. You can do that stuff on the server and server components are used for doing that. The advantage is because you're not shipping that extra library, you can do that stuff on the server. It helps in performance, makes your app faster. One thing that I want to point out is that server components cannot have interactivity. So if you are doing a functionality that is dependent on event handlers, like on click, you want to still do that on client. In short, server components are components that run on the server. If you want to create a database call, if you want to call a database, call an API, that stuff you can do on the server. And so a thinking model that I've been using to understand this is like, in my app, what are some stuff that need interactivity that should stay on the client? But then what is some stuff that is calling an external API, calling a database, or is doing a heavy operation that can be moved to the server could become a server component. So have any of you seen these starting to be used in larger projects? How have you seen them really affect the performance or how you utilize them? Um, and do you agree that this might force frameworks to specialize more now that they exist? I think we have to see if they can cross the adoption chasm. Because I think currently every app that I've seen talk about their app router experience either burned everything down and started it from zero to be built on the app router, or they're having a lot of issues. And I've seen comparisons from folks like Jack Harrington that are showing that server components are actually slower than using the pages directory. There's a bunch of ecosystem loss, like you can't use context anymore. A lot of the interactivity models that we have for sharing state don't work in a way that we would expect. And so one of the big questions I think React server components need to answer is why? Like they solve some problems that are technically impressive, but when you get down to what they're actually doing, in a lot of cases, they're solving a problem that's been solved really well by offloading that same work to an API or using serverless functions or put it on a PHP server and just call into that on the server and then have your React app hydrate on the client side. And my other question is, is this any different than what we were doing with server-side rendering or something like Astro, where the argument you can make is that with server-side rendering in Next.js, you are doing all of the work of hydrating the app on the server, and then you have to serialize that and pass that down with all of its data, and then you have to hydrate and deserialize and read all that data and do the work twice. So React Server Components limit some of that, but with something like Astro, where you do all the work and then you pass down HTML and CSS and then you selectively hydrate just the component that needs to be interactive, I guess I'm having a hard time understanding how there's an advantage that outweighs the additional complexity of implementing, like, why am I turning servers back on? Why am I suddenly having to handle my own caching layers and think about these things that like, there's a reason that PHP fell out of fashion as being like the primary way to serve websites. And it was because servers and caching are really hard and you don't want to manage them yourself. So unless we get to a highly specialized set of frameworks like WordPress, which there's a lot of reasons that people have feelings about WordPress too, but WordPress is one of the only ways that you can build a PHP site on the internet today that is so specialized that there is highly tuned caching and servers that will make it run really well and really fast. So there's a big gap between like 
technically impressive and like the proof of concept is cool and solving problems that I think actually need to be solved. As far as the specialization stuff goes, I can't really see it getting as specialized as the kind of comments that were alluded to goes, like an e-commerce specific framework. I think it's an interesting idea, but I think just because the nature, you know, assuming that it massively adopts, talking about React specifically, templates and starters lend themselves well to those exact things. Components are easily shareable, importable from other libraries. It doesn't really seem like a problem that needs to be solved because there isn't something so special about project that can't be abstracted into a component library or database or whatever. Jason kind of touched on this, but with the release of RSCs, a lot of people are finding that they're breaking their libraries that they have. I'll link it in the description, but there is one issue where Apollo would break with RSCs. And I think even Mark Erickson was saying he was having problems with Redux Toolkit, I believe. Do you think we're going to see more of this? What do you think this problem is? Do we think that the team is going to fix it? Like, how are we feeling about this? Again, Jason, you kind of asked, like, why do we have this? Yeah, I mean, it, is the value of RSC so high that it's worth shedding the entire ecosystem and having to start over again? And it is very hard for me to see a reasonable justification for it. Yeah, I think maybe that goes back to what Jason was saying before. Like, if this kind of does become standardized, how many projects are just going to be like, we don't really want to switch to React Server Components, all of this tooling that we're using, like, we have to go refactor all, like, let's just switch frameworks at that point. Right, let's just go use like SvelteKit or something. A lot of the same paradigms are there, but if you're going through all that work anyway, like why not just make the switch? Yeah, and if you're worried about performance, like why not just rewrite it to Rust if you're going to rewrite the whole app anyways, right? Like it's a very interesting space to be in. And I think like the issue that you're talking about, Emily, if I remember correctly, that issue also came because React Server Components was introduced in Next.js and that's what broke... Apollo. And I feel like that goes back to the way we introduce these changes to downstream libraries like Apollo and Redux. And I think this has happened before as well, where a new feature came out in Next.js and it broke people's products, their softwares after upgrading. I remember my own site broke when I was trying to push something. And I think if we have breaking changes, it's really going to make it really hard to adopt server components so we really have to think about the way that we are going to be pushing updates out for downstream libraries, especially something like Next.js. And it feels like there's even a little bit of stubbornness to it. Like if reading through that one thread, it doesn't seem like they're actively trying. Like I see on Twitter, of course, that Dan always has some great explanations about stuff. But I also see other times where some of the core members are making some just general everyday people feel bad about being confused about it. They're basically just telling them, no, you're wrong for misunderstanding this. And that, I just don't think it's a great approach to handle that kind of community communication. And it really shows in this example as well. That Principal Skinner meme comes to mind. You know the one I'm talking about where he's like, am I out of touch? No, it's the children who are wrong. I, I want to be very clear. Like The React team is doing some unbelievable technical work. But I think we're feeling their lack of community mindedness. They've historically been resistant to DevRel and, and having people who are like community builders as part of the team. And I think that has led to this sort of disconnect where they're like, we're hardcore technologists and we've built something that is technically impressive and everybody's asking why. And their response is to be like, why don't you see how brilliant this is? And they're like frustrated. Like I said, there's a lot of dots that need to get connected between like, something is very technically impressive and something is actually solving a problem. Like I've seen Dan talk through this and I do think 
that there are use cases where this is going to be the right thing. But what I'm struggling to see is I'm just not seeing somebody go out there to really paint that picture of here's where you are today. Here's the way you would solve this problem now. And here's why that falls short. And here's where React Server Components actually solve this problem in a meaningful way that's going to outperform any of the solutions out there by a order of magnitude high enough to justify not being able to use Apollo or Redux. So I think there's a lot of educational work to be done. And I think if they can find a way to get educators into the team and put that effort in, I think they can build their way back. Yeah, I think there are people asking for it in the community. And so the React team is in a really tough spot. So there's like people asking for this kind of behavior. They want to hyper-optimize. They want really good server rendering tech so they can do LinkedIn filling. And they want to be top search rank result page on Google, right? They need all these things for a reason. And the React team is currently serving them and they're serving all these other people that are just like, I'm just trying to build apps. I want it to be simple. I want it to be easy. So it's that is a tough spot. Like, how do you do that in a good way? And I think this problem has killed frameworks and stuff in the past before. And just like they're, they have a huge user base. Half of them want one thing. Half of them don't understand why all these changes need to be made. And I think that is a really tough, just like organizational problem, like a tough communication problem, as Jason said, to figure out. So yeah, we'll see. All right, up in the air, whether React server components will transform things or fade away. But before we get on to our last topic, I want to take a quick break uh, right now, uh, read an ad, and we will be right back. This episode is brought to you by LogRocket. LogRocket offers session replay, issue tracking, and product analytics to help you quickly surface and solve impactful issues affecting your user experience. With LogRocket, you can find and solve issues faster, improve conversion and adoption, and spend more time building a better product. All right, and we're back with our final topic that was causing a bit of a stir on Twitter earlier this week. Today's the 21st as we're recording. But over the weekend, Squarespace bought Google Domains and the whole Twitter dev timeline was low-key blowing up over it. So (laughs) it's minor, but it's not. Why are people mad about this acquisition? Why is everyone in a fuss over this? I'm so glad that Colby's on this because I think Colby (laughs) and I have taken exact opposite stances on this. Yeah, so then I'll start then. So I definitely feel a little bit of a sense of betrayal here. And I think it's mostly because I consider those my digital identity. So all of a sudden, and something I could have never thought about before, my digital identity was sold out from under me. And of course, Squarespace, it's a big, repeatable company. I'm sure I would be absolutely fine. But I just feel like I want to have a sense of option of where my domains go. And if I were to pick one, I don't think that would be Squarespace for whatever reasons. Their main objective is to sell site builders. And I don't think domains is going to be one of their highest priorities aside from this purchase. Regardless, I'm sure everybody's going to be fine if they just stick there, but I want to have the options. I want to be able to pick where I choose. And I never expected that from Google domains. So it just shot me with that move. I kind of landed on the other side of it because I think we're just crossing into the age where the tech companies that we thought were our cool tech friends have just grown to the size where they're effectively big banks and they're just big corporations, right? And so to them, Google Domains is a bundle of assets the same way that like mortgages are a bundle of assets. And they sold those assets to another company because they thought it would be like for their business, right? And there was probably zero consideration for what that means to anybody owning the domains, the same way that there's no consideration for what it means for somebody who has a mortgage. And like, 
one of the questions that I heard watching this go down is somebody's, how can they just sell our personal details? And I was like, but you got to get into big business. This is like the business. That's what happens. And I think for me, ultimately where I landed is all of these companies are either reselling domains through like one of the central providers, or they're so small that there's no reason to believe that they won't. Like I got an email from a niche domain provider that was like, hey, we're trying to pay for your renewal and we're not sure if we're going to be able to. So your domain just might stop working if we can't get them to take our money by this date. That's not going to happen with a Squarespace, right? It wouldn't happen with a Google. It won't happen with a Squarespace. I don't know what happens with a boutique domain name registrar out of some small town with a team of four. Ultimately, like I'm watching to see what Squarespace does with it. If they start spamming me with you have to add a site builder or we're going to triple the cost of your domain i'm going to care a lot but in the short term if they treat it the same way that google did where google's business is selling ads squarespace's business is selling site builders google tried to get me to use my ad credits and squarespace will try to get me to use my site builder credits and i'm really good at ignoring banners so it won't really change my experience at all and if that continues to be the case and they don't like quadruple prices or whatever then it's not worth the several days of my time that it would take to actually go through and do these transfers and get the domain records all set up and tested and configured. It's in the grand scope of things that I need to care about. This is not one that I can bring myself to care. Yeah, I cared about it just, yeah, maybe like personally, reactively. I just like Google domains is like UX. I don't know. I just feel like it was always nice to use quick. You always had, they had to like, Privacy protection was always on by default and stuff. Maybe Squarespace does that too. I just always found like Google domains as a product always felt really nice. So I think that was part of the betrayal feeling. And it just seems like such a bizarre thing. Like it makes sense when you step back, but I just think it was totally out of left field. Like you just never expect Google to be getting rid of their domains product. It's like, it's Google, right? It's just so weird. As of today, as far as I know, they still haven't told anybody that it's happening. We only know because of a Squarespace press release. That's so strange. Mm -hmm. Like, why haven't I received an email about it? I do want to point out the UX thing. It is bizarre to me that the registrar world is so poor in UX. I've been testing out a bunch of the big name ones, and I won't name them, but they're all such poor UX. And like he said, the Google domains had a great UX. It was very nice and easy to use. And part of that's what I'll miss as well. Do you guys have any alternatives for devs who absolutely do not want to work with Squarespace? Netlify. I'm leaning towards pork bun right now out of a lot of the ones that I've been testing. It seems pretty reliable and not perfect, but you know, has all the features I need. No, I appreciate the recommendation. I've got to like go shopping now. So <laughs> yeah. Namecheap and pork bun, I think put out big like discount codes that you can use if you want to save money on that transfer. I think GoDaddy is also an alternative to Squarespace and domains and everything. That was the other problem is when I started going through my options, I was like, GoDaddy. Oh, wait, no, I have like big ethical concerns about GoDaddy. Uh, what about Namecheap? Oh, I don't know. What Do I need to look into the CEO of Namecheap? It's like, you know, I just whatever, like Squarespace, I haven't seen you in the news. Take my money. I don't care. <laughs> Not yet. All right. Thank you, everyone, for joining us today. Colby, where can people find you if they want to know more about you? You can find me everywhere at Colby Fayok, primarily, usually Twitter and YouTube. And my hot take is Black Mirror. What's going on with this season? <laughs> now I have to watch. Jason, where can people find you? Most of what I'm posting is on YouTube these days at Learn with Jason on there or learnwithjason.dev if you want to find everything. And I believe this entire episode has been a hot take from me, so I will abstain. 
Shruti, where can everyone find you? You can find me on Twitter at ShrutiKapoor08 and YouTube also at ShrutiKapoor08. I recently launched my new YouTube channel, so I'm working very hard to put content out there. Very excited. Uh, my hot take, all of these AI tools actually frustrate me a lot. I live in Silicon Valley. Every time I walk into a cafe, everybody's talking about AI. And I'm just like, can you shut up? I don't want to hear one more <laughs> app about AI anymore. Are they adding chat to the payment systems now too to figure out what's on the menu? Oh God. Everything is an AI too. Chat GPT for this, chat GPT for that. I'm like, ugh. We're so over it. <laughs> <laughs> Noel, where can people find you? Yeah, I'm not super active on most social. You can find me as uh, N Minchow on GitHub. A uh, bunch of my projects there, but that's about it. And you can find Noel on the podcast. And here, yeah, every every week or so. Any hot takes? I don't think so. <laughs> I mean, yes, but no, I'm good. Yeah. Always the peacekeeper. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you everyone for joining us today. Everyone's socials will be linked in the description below, as well as all of the things we mentioned in today's podcast. Thank you everyone for joining. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. 